Well, my name is Kristen. If I have not had the chance to meet you before, I'm part of the leadership team here at Novation, and it is my privilege and my responsibility to be teaching this morning, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be with you. How many people in this room are parents? Will you raise your hand? Raise your hand. Okay, we got, we got a lot of hands in, your, in the air. Now, keep your hand in the air if you have ever misplaced a child. Oh, you guys, you're making me feel so much better about myself. I lost my son, Owen. Uh, Beginning of May, weather's getting nice. My husband, Joel, and I decided we were going to go for a walk along Ralston Creek Trail. And Owen, who had just turned 10, was like, oh, well, can I come? I want to bring my bike. And we said, sure. So we're walking along the trail. And Owen, because he was on his bike, kept getting ahead of us. And then he would come back and ride ahead and come back and check in again. And then like 20 minutes had passed without Owen coming back. And I'm like, Joel, do you think, do you think he got lost? And Joel's like, no, he's fine. He's probably just meeting us at the car. So we speed up our walking. We get to the car, no Owen. So we turn around and we, we walk back can't find them. We decide to split up because there's a couple different trails you can get off on along Ralston Creek. So we split up, meet back around. We still can't find Owen. It's now been like maybe 40 minutes. So I'm starting to panic. Like I've got low level panic. And Joel, who is the steady, calm, never overreacts, is still seeming like he's fine. And I say, do you think we should call the police? And Joel goes, yeah. And I was like, oh no, thinks we should call the police. This is really bad. So he calls 911. We, we take different paths still, trying to look for Owen. I call Scott and Janelle. Scott's our head pastor here at Novation. And I tell them, like, we've lost Owen. I'm crying. Janelle's like, we're on our way. We're going to come help you look. So they're headed to meet us. I can't get a hold of Joel because if you don't know this, when you call 911, call waiting no longer works. So I don't know what's happening with him. And I'm just praying, 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 praying. And then my phone rings and it's a number I don't recognize. And I answer it and it's my sweet little Owen's broken voice. Mama, where are you? Oh, the relief in that moment, I can't even describe it. So I, I talked to the woman who Owen had, who had stopped Owen, who noticed he was in distress. She gave him her cell phone. He called me just at the same time. A police officer found Owen, told Joel, meet me at the Westwoods clubhouse. I have your son. I was further away than Joel. Scott and Janelle were at the clubhouse. So Owen gets there with the police officer. It was like a movie. Joel was like running. Owen standing there crying. There should have been like music playing, you know? It was this like momentous, like reuniting. Such relief. So I'm still walking to the clubhouse. They, they, we have Owen back. Joel goes in to go to the bathroom or something. And Owen is sitting with Scott and Janelle on the bench outside. And it's kind of quiet. And he looks up at Scott and Janelle and goes can we not tell anybody about this? (laughs) And here I am sharing it with the church. I did get permission before I shared this story. But what was really interesting is on the way home, we're driving home in the car, me, Joel, and Owen. And I'm asking Owen, buddy, that must have been so scary. How are you feeling? Tell me what you were thinking. And he kept, he said, well, mom, I just kept praying. I was just asking Jesus every time I would come around a bend. I was asking Jesus that you and dad would be there, but you weren't. And that was hard. And I was like, oh, 
you know what, buddy, that is hard. I understand how in the moment you probably felt like God wasn't answering you. And he was like, yeah. And I said, but now when we look back, do you think that it was just an accident that a kind woman noticed your tears and gave you her cell phone? Do you think it was an accident that you had recently memorized my phone number? Do you think it was an accident that just when we needed the policeman to find you, he was there? All of those things were God intervening in not the way you expected, not the way you hoped that he would, but nonetheless, God was at work. And it was actually a really cool moment because for Owen as a 10-year-old boy, if you can internalize that truth, that God's silence does not mean God's absence. How helpful. Like how many of us need to remember that as adults, right? Like I know I do. So today we are going to talk more about that. We're actually going to be exploring the book of Esther. And in the story of Esther, we are going to see exactly what my little son Owen learned that day when he got lost, that God's silence does not equal God's absence. Before we get started, will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this church family. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to just gather together to worship you, to learn more about who you are, to experience your presence and your grace. This morning, God, I ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you would help us to lay distractions aside, and to just be present this morning for what you want to do in us, for the ways that you want to encourage us. God, I am dependent on you this morning. Help me to just get out of the way and allow you to work through me to encourage all of us together as a church family. In your name, amen. Well, just like any good story, I want to begin. I wish I could read the entire book of Esther to you, but that would take us too much time. So instead, I'm going to just summarize it for you. And like any good story, we need to begin with the setting. Where does the story of Esther take place? The story of Esther takes place about 100 years after the Babylonian exile. So in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered Judah and Jerusalem, they, they completely destroyed the temple and took most of the Jewish people into exile in Babylon. But then the Persian empire rose to power and defeated the Babylonians. And there was a Persian king named King Cyrus who allowed the people who had been taken into exile, not only the Israelites, but other people groups as well, to actually return to their homeland and rebuild and rebuild a life. They were still part of the Persian empire, but they, King Cyrus allowed them to go back. And many Jews chose to do that. But there were some who were integrated into their life in the Persian Empire. And the, Jew, the two Jewish people we are going to talk about today in the book of Esther are some of those who chose to remain in the land where they had been taken in to exile. So this story of Esther takes place in the Persian city of Susa. It was a capital city. Um, in the Persian Empire. And if you read the book of Esther, beginning to end, you should realize that you're reading what takes place over about 10 years. When you read it, you don't 
you don't necessarily get that timeline, but this doesn't all happen in a week or something. This is over the span of about 10 years. I also want to introduce you to the main characters that we're going to meet in this story. First of all, we're going to meet King Xerxes. King Xerxes is a uh, king of the Persian Empire, and he is portrayed as a pretty weak-minded, easily manipulated, often drunk king. So that's King Xerxes. Next up, we're going to meet Mordecai. Mordecai is one of those Jewish people I was just talking about who chose to remain in Persia. Mordecai was integrated into Persian culture. We don't get a lot of context about him. We don't know if he was a faithful, practicing Jew who was trying to live in faithfulness to the covenant that the Israelites made at Mount Sinai or not. We just don't know. But we know that Mordecai adopted his much younger cousin named Hadassah, or as we know her, Esther, because her parents had passed away. And so we know that Mordecai adopted Esther and that Esther was beautiful. She was a beautiful young woman. And then the last character that we're going to meet in this story is a man named Haman. And Haman is the villain. He is an evil man who is bent on the destruction of not only Mordecai, as we'll see, but also all of the Jewish people. One of the things that I want you to notice about these characters is that all of them, at best, are morally ambiguous. At worst, they're just flat-out evil. There is no single character in this story that we can hold up and try to emulate and be able to go like, oh, that is how to live a good life. That is how to honor God. And this is important because the purpose of the book of Esther is not for us to try to emulate any of these characters, but to actually look deeper into the text and try to understand what the author, who is anonymous, by the way, is trying to communicate to us. Now, the book of Esther uses a very interesting literary technique called a chiasm. And a chiasm uses parallel and symmetry in order to communicate an important message, the big ideas. And it is actually fascinating to read through the book of Esther. You can actually map out the first part of the book of Esther and the major events that take place, even key words and phrases that you find in the first part of the book to the pivot point, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then the second part of the story perfectly lines up with that first part in terms of the major events and key phrases, but with all of these ironic reversals. It's a very, very intentional design pattern. And when we notice it, it causes us to ask, why? Why was it written that way? So that's what we're going to talk about. I want to give you a quick summary, so settle in a little bit for story time here. I'm going to summarize the whole book just so that we all kind of have the major events in our minds as we begin to talk about how we can apply this to our lives today. So when the story opens, when the book of Esther opens, King Xerxes is throwing a crazy party. It's been going on for six months 
Six months of food and wine and luxury and just parading all of the wealth of the Persian Empire before his nobles, his officials, the military leaders. And then as soon as that six-month party comes to end, that wasn't quite enough. So immediately they begin a seven-day banquet to just you know keep the fun going. So at the end of this seven-day banquet, the last day, the king, who has had a lot to drink, decides the queen, Queen Vashti, needs to appear at this banquet so that all of my you know, friends here who have been partying for over six months can gaze upon her beauty. So he demands that Queen Vashti appear. And surprise, surprise, Queen Vashti doesn't want to do that right? She's like, no, I'm not coming. Now, again, we are not given the reason behind her decision. The text does not tell us. I know why I wouldn't appear in that situation, but at the time to defy the king, like you just didn't do that. So the king becomes very angry. He deposes Vashti. She's no longer queen. And then his advisors who have also been drinking at the party for the last six months are like, we have a plan we should hold a Persian bachelorette. If you're familiar with the show, The Bachelorette, that is what happens. Guys, the Bible is exciting. You gotta read this to believe it. They hold a Persian bachelorette. The king sends his officials into all the empire and says, bring all the beautiful young women. Bring them all back to me. Bring them into the palace. And then put them through 12 months of a special diet, beauty treatments, oil, incense, give them the, you know, the whole deal. It's like the makeover shows, you know, that's what they're doing with these young women. And Esther just so happens to be one of those beautiful young women. So she is taken by the king's officials into his harem to undergo these 12 months of beauty treatments. But before she goes, Mordecai, remember her uncle who has raised her, tells her, Don't tell them that you're Jewish. Keep your identity a secret. And Esther obeys. So she goes into the the harem. She undergoes these 12 months of beauty treatments. And then it just gets crazier. This is what happens. Each of those girls, each of those women, have to spend one night with the king. And this is how he's going to decide who his new queen is going to be. But the fate of the women who are not chosen, which is going to be most of them, they will live out the rest of their days in luxury in the king's harem, but in isolation with no prospects, no hope for their own family, for their own life. It's not a great deal for the women. And so Esther, her night comes, her night with the king comes, and the text tells us that she pleases the king more than all of the other women. He really likes Esther, and he says, you know what? You are going to be the new queen. So Esther finds herself, still with her Jewish identity hidden, now married to King Xerxes, the new queen of the Persian Empire. Well, while all this is going on inside the palace, outside the palace, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and Haman, who is a high official in the Persian court, they don't get along. Mordecai refuses to show Haman the proper respect due somebody of a high position in the Persian court. And then when Haman finds out that Mordecai is actually Jewish, he gets really mad. And he comes up with a plan to 
caused the destruction, the annihilation of all of the Jews still living in the Persian Empire because he's mad at Mordecai. So he manipulates the king as we have seen him do before, and he gets the king to issue a decree that on a certain day, about 11 months in the future, all of the Persian Empire, who is neighbors with a Jewish family, is to murder them and plunder their things. And so Mordecai is just distraught and brokenhearted about this. So he sends word to, about what is going on, about this decree. And he says, listen, you have got to intervene. You have to do something. You've got to go to the king and beg for the king's mercy. Well, king, or Queen Esther responds and she says, <coughs> excuse me, she says, I cannot just approach the king if I haven't been summoned. That would be to take my own life into my, into my hands because if you were to go to the king without being summoned, you do actually risk your life. If he extends his scepter to you, then you're in the clear. But if he does not, your life is forfeit on the spot. So she tells Mordecai, like, I, I can't do that. And besides, the king hasn't even called for me for 30 days. I don't know when I'm going to have an audience with the king again. Well, Mordecai sends a message back to her. I want to read you um, these verses. This is Esther 4, uh, verse 13 and 14. This is what Mordecai says in response. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Now again, we don't see Esther's thinking. We are not given any insight to the reason that these words cause courage to rise up in her, but they do because Esther responds with those famous words, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do it. And she does. She gets her royal robes on and she goes before the king and the king extends his scepter and she is given his ear and he says esther tell me what you want i'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom well esther doesn't take the direct route she says okay what i want is for you and haman to come to a banquet right now today let's let's go to this banquet and the king's like great so haman and the king come to this banquet. There's food. It's wonderful. They enjoy some time together. The king asks her again, tell me what it is you want. And she says, well, how about if we do this again tomorrow? Come back tomorrow, you and Haman, let's have another banquet. And the king agrees. So their time together comes to an end. Haman leaves to go home. As he's walking through the courtyard, he sees none other than Mordecai. And Mordecai gives him no no respect, doesn't pay any attention to him, doesn't honor him, doesn't acknowledge him, and Haman burns with anger. So he goes home, he tells his wife about Mordecai and how frustrated he is with Mordecai, and him and his wife decide, here's what you should do. Let's build a 75-foot stake in our front yard, and tomorrow you should go to the king and convince him to order Mordecai's execution on this stake. And Haman's like, yes, that is a great idea. Let's do that. Well, back at the palace, this is the pivot of the story. Back at the palace, listen to what's happening. This is Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. 
So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. How ordinary, right? Maybe the food didn't settle with him. We don't know, but he couldn't sleep. So he had one of his officials get the royal chronicles and read it. It just so happens that a few years before this, Mordecai had overheard two of the king's officials plotting to assassinate him. And Mordecai reported this to Esther, who told the king and gave Mordecai credit for it. So the assassination attempt was, you know, ruined. They, they found out and the two men responsible for it were put to death. And Mordecai was written down in the chronicles for having saved the king. Well, it just so happens that's the place in the royal chronicles that the official begins reading from. And the king's like, oh, I forgot about that. And he asked the official, did we ever reward Mordecai for that? And the, f- the official says, no, nothing's been done for him yet. So the next morning, Haman arrives, all ready to convince the king to order Mordecai's death on the stake that he constructed in his front yard. But before Haman can get out his request, the king says, Haman, let me ask you a question. What should be done for the man who pleases the king that the king wants to honor? And Haman, in his pride, is like, it's got to be me, right? Who would the king want to honor more than me? So Haman says, I know what you should do. Give him your royal robes. Set him on your royal horse. Have one of your officials parade him through the city, announcing his greatness and announcing that the king is pleased with him. And the king says, that's a great idea. Go and do it for Mordecai. Can you imagine the humiliation? This is the beginning of Mordecai's downfall. Well, then the second banquet with Queen Esther happens. The king and Haman come back to the banquet. And again, the king asks Esther, what is it that you want? I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And this time, Esther reveals her Jewish identity. She tells the king that Haman has orchestrated this plot that would result in the destruction of her people. And instead of Mordecai being impaled upon the stake that Haman built in his own front yard, the king orders Haman's death on that very stake. I mean, ironic reversals abound, right? Mordecai is raised to a powerful position within the court. A counter decree is issued that demands that the Jewish people on the day that was set for their destruction, instead they unite, they defend themselves, and they are delivered. This uh, account of Esther is still celebrated by our Jewish brothers and sisters in the celebration of Purim, which happens every year. And it's a celebration of the deliverance of God's people from Haman's evil decree. So how are we doing with story time? Yeah? All right. So this is a great story. You read it. It's got all the great features of a great story, right? But when we look at the design of it, when we look beyond just the text, we see some really interesting things. The first interesting thing that you will know if you read this story in its entirety, the name of God is never mentioned. Not one single time. God does not act in this story that we can see, obviously. Nobody in the story calls upon the name of God. It's the only book in the Bible that this is true of. What this story causes us to do is to look for God's providence in the everyday, ordinary unfolding of life. How many people know that when we are in a season where we feel like God is silent, where we are begging him to move 
on our behalf. How many know that what we want is the miracle, right? We're praying for the parting of the Red Sea, right? We want to see God come in powerfully and, and do things that leave us with no question but that it was God's doing. But what we see in the story of Esther is that sometimes God is working in everyday, ordinary ways that we might miss if we're not looking for it. This is really important because I know in my own life, I have been in those seasons where it feels like God is silent. And when his silence feels like absence, it leaves me asking hard questions. Is God there? Does he love me? Does he hear me? The book of Esther is such an encouragement to us when we are able to see the broad strokes that the whole story lays out for us to point us towards the reality that our God is so powerful that he is working through the everyday ordinary decisions of millions and billions of people through all millennia of time to work out his purposes in the world. So what we're going to do with the rest of the time that we have together is we're going to consider what do we do when it feels like God is silent? And I was, as I was reflecting on this, there are a few things that really stood out to me. The first thing that we can do in those seasons where it feels like God is silent is to continue to trust that Jesus is at work. Jesus is at work in the world around us. Scott talked about this last week when we were talking about Daniel and about kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Sometimes when we look at what's happening in our culture, in our country, even on the global stage, it can be really discouraging. There is so much brokenness, division, oppression, just flat out sin that seems like it's running wild in the world around us. But When we think about the book of Esther and when we think about the perspective of Mordecai and the Jewish people living in the Persian empire, don't you think they would have felt the exact same thing? That it's just a disaster out there. It's a dumpster fire. And yet through pagan kings, through decisions of evil men, God was at work to deliver his people. And the same is true for us today. When we look at the world around us, remember God is at work. In Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We can be confident of that. Jesus is at work in the world around us. And he's also at work in our own individual lives. Just like the plot to annihilate the Jewish people, we sometimes find ourselves in circumstances that are tragic, difficult, devastating. And those circumstances in and of themselves are not good. But the one who is working all things together for our good is still at work. There is still beauty that's going to grow out of the ashes of what feels like our set of circumstances sometimes. The account of Esther reminds us that even in our worst circumstances, God is at work and God will fulfill his promises. 
Romans 8.28 sums this up beautifully. If you've never memorized this verse, I highly recommend it. Romans 8.28 says, And we know for, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You can hold on to that in those seasons where it feels like God is silent. As I was thinking about what it looks like to trust God in seasons of silence, I wanted to just put a little bit more like grit to it because trust God feels like one of those blanket statements that is easy to say, but a little bit harder to do in reality. So I was thinking for my own life, there's a couple things that really help me to trust God in those seasons of doubt of silence. One of them is to build your trust muscles now. It is really important when you're not in a season where things are super hard, that you're walking day by day with Jesus, that you're practicing trusting him in the small things, leaning on him in the small things. So then when those trials come, when we're waiting on an answer for God from God, and it feels like he's not responding, we have practice building up those trust muscles. So start doing that today. You'll be putting money in the bank, so to speak, for those seasons that will come down the road. I also find it really helpful to look backwards. When I look back on my life and what God has already done and the ways in which he's already been faithful, it helps me believe that he will continue to be faithful in the future. And then the third thing that really helps me to trust God is to listen to other people's stories, both in our scriptures, like dig into the book of Esther, read the stories of how God is working with his people and through his people, because you will be encouraged. Listen to the stories of the people in your home group as they share about God's faithfulness. Your faith will be built up as well. The second thing that I think we see in the, in the book of Esther is a call to each one of us to use our influence for the sake of the kingdom. Use our influence. When Mordecai sent the message back to Esther that caused her change of heart and caused her to be willing to appear before the king, he says in 4.14, Mordecai's words were, you know, you may have been made queen, for such a time as this. You may have been brought into the palace for such a time as this. And every one of us in this room is in the palace, so to speak, in one way or another. All of us have the ability to use our influence for the good of other people and for the glory of God. There are so many examples of this happening in this room right here and all throughout the church around the world. I actually know somebody who lives on 10% of their income, gives away 90% of it, uses it for the sake of the kingdom. That's pretty radical. Not everybody is called to using their influence that particular way, but that's just one example. I know other people sitting in this room who use their businesses, their skill in medicine, their trade skills to bless other people, to take care of teen moms, to take care of widows, to take care of people going through a hard time, people without health insurance. I've heard so many stories of the way that you are using your influence for the sake of the kingdom. And I want to encourage us to keep doing that because God works in somebody else's season of silence. You might be the answer. God might work through you to give somebody else that realization that they are not forgotten, that God has not left them, that God hears their prayer. 
In Philippians 2.13, Paul is talking to the church about how to live as Christians, how to be the body of Christ. And he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That's incredible. God works in you and in me to fulfill his good purpose in the world around us. So let's step into those areas of influence. Let's really consider where you are in the palace and pick something right now with what you have and where you're at, where you can start using your influence for the sake of the kingdom. And then last but not least, when you are in a season where it feels like God is silent, focus on the cross. Unlike Mordecai and unlike Esther, we're sitting on the other side of history. We already know that Jesus came, that he fulfilled everything that was promised to us. We can look at the cross and that's all the answer that we need, that God is not silent. In 2 Corinthians 2.10, it says no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. That's all the answer we need is just look at the cross. God is still working in this world. He is calling people to himself. His kingdom is advancing. He is bringing all of history to its ultimate culmination where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, John sees this vision <coughs> of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to John. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. What good news is that? He's alive forever and ever. He holds the keys of death and the grave. The story is not over. This season of silence is not the end. Jesus is at work. At the end of Revelation, this is like the wrap-up of everything that's to come. I love these verses. This is Revelation 21, verse 3 to 7. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's us. We are the victorious in Jesus because he is victorious because on the cross, he defeated sin and Satan and death. 
We are victorious in him. All of the seasons of silence that we walk through on this side of heaven, one day we're going to see the way that God was weaving all of those things into this beautiful, redemptive story that will cause us to do nothing but fall on our knees and worship him. So what I want us to do, the way that I want us to end today is a little practical. You should have gotten a little note card when you walked in this morning. If you didn't get one, if you just want to raise your hand, someone will come around and bring you a note card. What I want you to do is I want you to think about your life right now. I want you to think about something going on in the world that is causing you to doubt or question or say, God, why aren't you answering? Why aren't you moving? And I want you to write it down. And then I want you to think about something in your personal life. Is there a prayer you've been praying for a broken marriage or a broken relationship, for a wayward child, for a health diagnosis, for a a, a deep prayer of something you've been asking God to do or change or reveal, where you feel like God hasn't answered? I want you to write it down. Get real specific. And then last but not least, I want you to think about where you're in the palace. Where can you use your influence? Where is God calling you today to step out, to risk a little bit of yourself for the good of the kingdom? Take a few minutes. We're going to sing Waymaker one more time. And once you've written those three things down, I want you to stand up and as an act of faith, worship God and say, you are the Waymaker. In this situation where I feel like you're silent, you're going to make a way where there is no way. You are the miracle worker. You are the promise keeper. We're just going to end by declaring that in these specific areas where you feel like God is silent, you are going to trust him for an answer. Whether you see it right now or not, whether it comes the way you expect it to or not, he's victorious. We can put our money on it. He's not going to let us down. So once you have written those, go ahead and stand up and let's worship together today. Thank you. 
Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. God's, abs- God's silence doesn't equal his absence. That was simply profound, and it's true. So whatever you're believing God for and waiting on God for, keep trusting. He's a good God, and he's going to be on time always. And he works all things for good. So, Father, as we uh, go from this place this morning, let us go filled with faith and courage and hope in you, Jesus, because you're it. Nothing changes you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we hold on to that. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us in our doubts. Help us in our struggles to hold on to you. And uh, Thank you for being our hope and our healer. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're more than enough and that you are making a way. In Jesus' name, amen. I was a-